The Genesis Flood, one of the most famous stories in all the world. What was the scope of the flood? Is any of it historical or is it mostly a literary text? This is not the version of the flood you heard in Sunday school. We're tackling the main section of the Great Flood on this episode of Does the Bible Say That? Hey, y'all. It is Does the Bible Say That? And I am Dave Lester. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Wherever you're listening to podcasts, please consider leaving a rating and a review as that helps other people find the show. It would be great even if you could share an episode of this podcast that maybe you like or you resonated with on your social media feeds to let people know that it's out there. On this very episode, you're listening to my guest, Eli Price, who will bring in in a moment, and I are going to be tackling Genesis chapter 7, the main part of this ancient flood story. Do you remember the first time you heard about the Noah's Ark and the flood account? Were you in Sunday school? Did your parents read you a story? Did you hear it from a friend? Did you read it in a book maybe later on as a teenager or an adult? We are going to be tackling this world-famous story in this very episode. Before I read Genesis 7 and bring on my guest, I thought it would be important to actually talk about, again, just a little bit about the kind of history and culture that this text was likely written in. These ancient people, they were like us. They were trying to figure things out. They were trying to trace back their lineage to uh, leaders and important people in their community from old, and writing down these accounts in Genesis, which as a Christian I believe is inspired, was a part of that work. They were tracing their lineage, lineage back. The kind of culture that they wrote the book of Genesis in and the Torah There were other stories circulating around. Again, if they wrote this during the Babylonian exile and ancient Israelites wrote this to combat some of the stories that they were hearing in the ancient Near East, as if these ancient Israelites were saying, no, 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 that's not how it went. This is how we believe things went. Remember, with these writings... There is a historical context. In the book, Come Out My People, God's Call Out of Empire in the Bible and Beyond, Wes Howard Brooke gets into talking about the context of the history in which this text in Genesis was written. Let me read this to you as an introduction to frame this conversation that we're going to have on the podcast. Quote, There was only one human on earth who could prevent humanity from being wiped out altogether. The difference is clear. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6-9. Noah was unique among the humans of his time. We'll explore later the specific meaning of the first two attributes that describe Noah. The third, 
however, is central to the religion that stands against empire. To walk with God is to live each moment in relationship with the truly holy. It is the path opposite that of Cain, who went away from God's presence. This stark contrast underlies each of the two religions. One builds a city on one's own initiative and names it after oneself. The other builds an ark at God's command to shelter and preserve God's creation. And so the flood comes. The story is in many ways a satire of the Sumerian Gilgamesh epic. In that narrative, a future king went off to seek the secret of immortality after many harrowing experiences, including power acquired by defeating the embodied forces of the natural world and a great flood, he found that he must accept life as it is. In other words, one can't change the world but must adapt to it. In the Genesis flood, not only is the hero no king, but the world is utterly transformed as a result of his collaboration with the divine will and power. God makes a covenant with Noah and all flesh, never again to cause widespread destruction by flood. Genesis 9, 9 through 17, unquote. We will get to Genesis 9, obviously, in the future. So that's an example of ancient people correcting the record, perhaps, writing against these, these stories, these myths that they were hearing back during the Babylonian captivity and specifically mentioned there by Wes Howard Brook. In contrast to the Epic of Gilgamesh, in the book From Creation to the Cross, Understanding the First Half of the Bible by Albert H. Bayless, he writes about the reasons, uh, the deeper reasons why this flood account was written down and recorded for all of us down through the ages. Quote, the Bible next records the progress of the first civilization from Adam to Noah. It is a story marked by a dismal conclusion. In contrast to the Babylonian flood story in which the gods destroy mankind because they were making too much noise, the Bible cites the moral failure of man. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. So ends the story of Adam's descendants with the announcement that Yahweh, who had made humanity, has decided to unmake mankind. The story of Noah thus begins with the tragic results for society of this moral breakdown. The earth is filled with violence. Once again, the sovereign God judges the moral failure of man and this time destroys the ancient world by flood. Civilization must start anew through a single family whose head walked with God, unquote. All right, so there is some just kind of general review and backdrop before we launch into this text in Genesis chapter 7. Let me go ahead and read uh, Genesis chapter 7 to you in its entirety. This is from the New International Version, the NIV. Quote, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark. As God had commanded Noah, and after the seven days the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to his kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days, unquote. Okay, I am here with a friend who hosts a great film podcast that dives deep into movie directors' filmographies. I actually, I love this approach to a podcast because about seven or eight years ago or something like that, Michelle, my wife and I started to do this. We watched through a director's filmography, starting with their first features and watching to their their current movies. So we did, we've done this with the Coen brothers, uh, who are my favorite filmmakers, Steven Spielberg, one of my storytellers from my childhood like a third grandpa and we've done Catherine bigelow we, we plan on doing a few more so i love this approach to a podcast if you love movies or even if you don't like movies you may listen to this podcast and discover that you actually do like movies so you will want to check out the establishing shot podcast wherever you like to get podcast shows my friend eli price is here with me how are you tonight sir i'm doing well how are you I, I'm doing great. Thanks. I mean, I say tonight, but uh, people may listen to this in the morning, in the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? Who, who knows when people are are listening in on this conversation? Uh, but from the start here, uh, let's let's talk about your podcast, because I'm a fan of this show. I think it's really cool. Uh, what were the beginnings of the Establishing Shot podcast? And why did you want to put a podcast out into the world that goes through directors' filmographies? Yeah, so it, it's funny. Um, I I think so. I started getting more and more into film. Um, I want to say back around like 
2013, 2014. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed movies before then and, and watched, you know, a decent amount when I was in college. And, um, but, uh, but I really started getting more into like, okay, what other thing, what other sorts of films other than the cool blockbuster movies are out there, um, around that time. Um, and then jump forward to, uh, probably, I want to say it would be around 2018, 2019. Um, I was actually reading um, a book with a, a group of men in my church. We were kind of doing like a book study. And um, the name of the book is escaping me in this moment, as is the author. But um, <laughs> it was um, it was about uh, like habits that you build into your life. And one of the chapters was on curating media. Um, so not like cutting out media, but like curating down um, so that you're taking in media with a purpose. Uh, and so uh, I, I kind of um, read that and um, I had started getting in more into like some film podcasts like uh, Film Spotting and um, oh, yeah. uh, podcasts like that. And so um, uh, I, I decided after reading that that I was going to cut out watching TV shows because I, you know, I would watch throw on TV shows whenever, just pop them on. So I cut out watching TV shows and all that, that kind of stuff. And I decided I was only going to watch movies for a year, even if I watched them broken up and, um, and every movie I watched, I was going to write something about it. And so I got a letterboxed account around this time, uh, and started writing something on every movie I watched and listening to movie podcasts. And, um, so yeah, just kind of the the process of doing that um, really made me fall in love with film more, the process of how films are made, um, the the technical aspects of it. And uh, yeah, it it's um, it's just a, a really a really amazing art form that I fell in love with. As far as the the format of the podcast, it's just kind of um, a way of watching movies that I kind of found really engaging and, um, and fun. Um, there's a, there's another podcast that uses the same format out there called blank check. Um, and, I uh, to that one. yeah, it's, I will say this, I, I don't know how, um, I don't, you know, I'm not as engaged with what your audience may or may not like, but they are a more vulgar <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if you, if you're not into that, then maybe uh, that one's not the one for you. Mine is is not at all, uh, but uh, but they are um, they're just you know a little bit more vulgar in their language and jokes and stuff. Um, but they they do a similar uh, form. They not similar, the same sort of format um, okay. that I do. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it, I just you can really a... see um, yeah you can really see a director's development over mm -hmm. time. I think with um yeah their technique and i mean some of them they get bigger budgets but some of them don't yeah. you know mm -hmm. some some you have a few if you get your big blockbuster and it kind of flops i mean you maybe go back to making more independent stuff oh yeah but it is interesting to investigate even some of the similar themes that you see over time that mm -hmm. directors keep wrestling with and then there's intentionality there of you know, this person keeps going back to this theme. Uh, Miyazaki, who put out The Boy and the Heron last year, which is just mm -hmm. an excellent, excellent film. Um, you know, he really mines post-World War II Japan in so many movies. 
Um, and there's other filmmakers where if they kept digging into those themes, I think it would get really old. It's kind of like, why is yeah. this person doing this again? But each movie, Miyazaki, it just seems um, like he's taking on something fresh. I mean, he is mm -hmm. so good. And he has just mined so much art and so much yeah. important art from that. It really is amazing. But anyways, yeah. that's kind of a, a rabbit trail. But that's the the power of oh, doing yeah. a podcast like what you're doing and looking at those things. And think th even thinking about it. So I I have just a little bit of background. I I um, graduated in 2018 with a, a MDiv. That's a Master of Divinity with a, a specialization in Christian apologetics. And so um, that's kind of, so when I approach things um, like film or other art, I'm always thinking about it from that perspective. What is the the worldview I'm taking in? What is, um, you know, what is being communicated about society, about this director's thoughts on how the world works? Um, I'm always thinking about movies in that way. Um, and so, um, and even Robert K. Johnston, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's yeah, out of real uh, spirituality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That in that book, um, uh, he says, uh, something to the effect, um, this isn't a direct quote, but it's something to the effect of, um, you really, to really understand, um, an artist, you have to kind of take in the whole of their, um, their body of work. And he's, he's saying that not just about film in general, but, but it's art in general. Um, and so I, I really liked that. And, um, that was an, another kind of inspiration of the format of, of the podcast, um, of, Hey, let's, let's go through and take in this artist's whole body of work and see what they have to say about the world and who we are as humans and, um, and how, and, and also be entertained, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a, all those things are such a fine balance. And mm -hmm. right now you're going through the films of Steven Spielberg. We just recorded mm -hmm. an episode which will be out probably by the time people hear this episode or maybe a couple of days after um, 70s and 80s Steven Spielberg. And, and that's a guy that comes to mind where if you're talking about the intersection of art and kind of commercial entertainment, entertaining an mm -hmm. audience. He has got to be probably one of the kings of that. It's not like every movie he's ever made is is good necessarily, but most of them are very right. good to great. And and he's really an artist who has mastered that. And I think Nolan is maybe he's very different than Spielberg, but he's maybe the successor to that kind of artistic yes. vision and also very entertaining films. Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, People should go go check out. You've done Wes Anderson, Christopher Nolan, and now you're doing 70s and 80s Spielberg. So mm -hmm. you dive deep, man. You go deep yeah, into yes. the film. They're long. It's a production. long -form Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> but you can you come out and you're like, wow, it enriches the experience of watching these films. And so mm -hmm. that's uh I'm glad you're doing the work. I'm I'm glad the podcast is out there. So I'm excited that you've you've gotten it gotten it out there to people. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, all right. It, it is as tempted as I am to talk film. I think in the next episode, we will have a special episode where Eli and I are going to talk about the film Noah by Darren Aronofsky. So then we will go all film boy nerd out on that. But this is a Bible podcast, so we should get to talking about the Bible. Eli has an MDiv, a master's in divinity, meaning usually about 90 hours at a seminary of studying mm -hmm. 
the Bible. So we have some work to do in uh, Genesis <laughs> chapter seven, which we're in the middle of the flood account. We started the flood account last episode I put out with my friend, Pastor Tyler Kirkpatrick, and now we're going to get into the meat of things. So before we do that, Eli, what is your personal story with the Bible? How do you see the Bible and what does the Bible mean to you? Yeah, um, it's a really hard question to answer. Uh, (laughs) I guess maybe not if you're like a really strong fundamentalist um, (laughs) and just want to uh, state the doctrine of inerrancy or whatever about the Bible. But, um, sure. but for me, um, I, I do see the Bible as inspired by the Holy spirit. And, um, and, uh, and I, I, I say inerrant with an asterisk, uh, just because, um, I don't want to be put in a certain camp, <laughs> but I do believe that the Bible is, as it says, profitable and um, and teaches you who God is, what the world is like, who we, what we are like. Um, but I also am aware that um, I've become more and more aware the older I get, and the more you know I, I read and study that um, what we believe about the Bible is um, very much based on our our culture, our influences you know, the, the sorts of churches we're in, uh, the sorts of, um, theological discussions we may have with others. Um, it's very oh, yeah. much influenced by that. And so That's a I really, discussion. oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I really try to, when I approach the Bible, um, I really try to hold my, I guess, doctrinal or theological beliefs, not maybe with an open hand, but with a really loose grip. Um, if that makes sense. Um, and I want to look at what the context of the passage is. Um, I want to question what I've been, what I would naturally be inclined to believe about what, what something is saying and, um, and be, I I guess like it's just that apologetics mindset coming of always being willing to change your mind. If a a new, a different perspective or, or different, way of seeing the truth, um, presents itself. Uh, and so I, I guess that's kind of how I approach the Bible. Um, I, I believe that it is, I believe that it's, it's perfect, perfectly how God wanted it to be to reveal who he is and, and who we are. But I also know that I'm imperfect in my, uh, in my reading and interpretation of it. So, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's kind of my story with the Bible, my approach. I, I grew up in church, so I've I've been hearing Bible stories my whole life, um, including yeah. the Noah story that we're we're going to oh, yeah. talk about All today. Way back in Sunday school as a little oh, kid, yeah. right? <laughs> Noah bringing the animals on the ark. Yeah, there you go. In, in preschool, you know, even nursery, even <laughs> <laughs> so. And, and, and we pass the story on. You're probably passing the story on to your kids. I've oh, uh, yeah. I've definitely read this story. We'll we'll say sanitized because I really do. <laughs> you know, my friend Pastor Tyler made this comment last episode. The the Bible account is not a story for kids. I mean, no. <laughs> so it's it's intentionally sanitized a little bit to make you know Noah's this guy who loves animals and brings them all on the ark kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um. So and that's I think it's natural to do that, but. Yeah, sorry, you were saying something else. 
I guess just like as far as like that go all that goes, it's just um yeah, it the Bible does mean a lot to me. It 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 does show me flaws of myself and it does teach me and it does um help me grow and um you know it it's just it's very it's a very full you know whatever you may believe about the bible as far as it as far as it's supernatural or spiritual or whatever place uh you know it's just a very rich text of literature um even even just in and of itself without any spiritual you know implications For um sure. so yeah it's it's just it's an it's an incredible book and you know for for you and i as christians you know very profitable for for us in in life and um and how we Yeah. live so yeah Certainly. Absolutely. Well, okay. Um, earlier in the episode, I read the text of Genesis chapter seven. The great flood is coming upon the earth. This seismic flood is a method of God's judgment. That's Clearly, no matter how you take this text, that's what the passage is about. Uh, God's wrath and or judgment is coming upon the earth because of whatever shenanigans were happening in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. <laughs> Go back and listen to that episode. I still don't know what's going on. But um, so so God saw, and you know, I'll call back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, where God saw that everything was good that God had made. God saw that the earth was filled with violence. So here is another reason as to why judgment is coming, why there has to be some sense of justice, because there are wrong things happening, really bad things were going on. Um, so we're going to start with uh, chapter 7, verse 1. The Great Flood is coming. Uh, Eli, do you have views on the Great Flood? Do you believe this was a universal flood across the whole earth? or a more localized flood? Do you kind of take a literary approach? Uh, what's what's your theory about Noah's flood? Yeah, um, it. I definitely. It, it's one of the when it comes to things like this in scripture um, that uh, that are very involved with with science with modern science. I, I kind of take a. Um, uh, I'm not going to make a firm stance, even though like I will definitely like I'll take a stand, but I'll also always be open to to, to Yeah. changing that stance. Uh, Sure. but I, I really have a hard time believing just with what we see in, in, in science and geology and all that, um, that it was a, a fully global flood, just like, just like the logical idea of it, there not being enough water to, to cover, Right. um, everything. And if some sort of like seismic, like crazy activity was happening to change the earth um during the flood uh like noah would not have survived the flood because it it would have been such such catastrophic stuff happening that that there's no way a really well built boat would even survive that sort of activity so um i i just have a hard time reconciling a a fully global covering the whole entire globe uh, flood myself. Um, and then, so I definitely believe it was a localized flood. We have, you know, other, 
other texts, uh, um, Gilgamesh and uh, other ancient texts that refer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't say that one because I'm never sure how to pronounce it. So I, I'm not uh, either. I just say it confidently. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, so we, we, and then there's also geological evidence, um, which, you know, you, you even sent me a couple of articles um, that yeah. I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on um, that. There is geological evidence of a flood in this, this area, this Mesopotamian area, the black sea. Um, right. Yeah. And so it, um, I think it, it was a real event. Um, I think it was local. And then where you go from there is kind of like, just, I feel like it's just guessing and what makes mm-hmm. most sense to you um, was it did did it just kill a bunch of people in that area and there were other people alive in other parts of the world um, maybe or was it far back enough in history where maybe um, people had not spread yet um, and maybe that was part of another reason God was was you know not happy with us is because we weren't being fruitful and multiplying we and and filling the earth they were just staying comfortable where they were and maybe he did wipe out all of humanity in a that because they were all right there in that area still um i it i don't know there's not really a way to know for sure um so that on on those points i'm kind of just open to like, well, what I guess like what makes the most sense and willing to change my mind if something someone can, you know, make a convincing argument otherwise. Yeah. Someone comes but, along yeah. with a good persuasive article or book or something. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh so we'll start with uh verse one and chapter seven here. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. So it's time now to enter the ark as judgment is imminent. The, uh, the people entering the ark again are Noah, Noah's unnamed wife. In Aronofsky's film, it's uh, Nama, right? Played by Jennifer Conley, I think. Yeah, I we'll, think we'll you're get right. to that. Yeah, we'll get to that next episode. But she's unnamed in the text. And then their sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, as well as his son's wives, are also unnamed. So eight people, uh, at least, recorded in the ark, in the, you know, as entering the ark here, God tells Noah that God has found Noah righteous in his generation. And as my friend, Pastor Tyler Kirkpatrick and I talked about last episode, it doesn't mean like a sinless perfection. It just, mm-hmm. you know, it's employed often in the Hebrew Bible for someone who follows God closely and basically just does what God says. He's just, he's a good guy. So that's, that's Noah. That's our character of Noah. And it says this a couple of times in the text, actually. So it's really making this as a, as a point. So verses two and three, um, take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, that keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. So now this verse is contrasted with a verse from the last episode again, Genesis 6, 19 through 20 where pairs of all kinds of creatures would come to the ark. So in this verse, the instruction is for some extra pairs. And this will become clear after the flood as clean animals and birds will be offered in sacrifice. Uh, so obviously some extra pairs are needed. They need you know mm-hmm. extra pairs for the worship, the, the sacrifice that's going to happen. Seven pairs of every kind of bird is also required. So their various kinds can survive throughout the earth after the flood unclean animals are also 
mentioned here. So what is the difference between a clean animal and an unclean animal? I'm not going to go, we're not going to go deep into that in this podcast. We got other stuff to cover. Leviticus 11 actually spells this out. So this is further along in the Torah. And it shows really that the Torah in a lot of ways should be thought of as one document. It may have been written and edited together at about the same point in history, or at least very, very close together. And also, as far as like clean animals and unclean animals, I found of all places, gotquestions.org actually had a pretty straightforward <laughs> definition. Uh, quote, clean animals, land animals that chew the cud and have a divided hoof, such as cattle, deer, goats, and sheep, and then seafood with both fins and scales, such as bluegill, grouper, and cod, certain birds, including chickens, doves, and ducks, and even some insects, such as grasshoppers and locusts, un unquote. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Eli, I didn't mention you are from Louisiana. You're a little bit mm -hmm. outside of New Orleans. Uh, is there a cuisine of grasshoppers or locusts down there in Louisiana? Do you guys eat, eat some clean animals? I, I know there's... <laughs> uh, I've never been to Louisiana. I really want to go. I know the cuisine is very unique and, and yeah. very good from what I hear down there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do eat crawfish, which some people might think is some sort of insect. Um, but it is, uh, it's, I guess, technically a, a sort of shellfish. Um, so that would be, yeah. that would be available uh, to, to know what to eat. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Hebrew people. Um, so that, you know, they would have, I guess they would have fit right in uh, during crawfish season, which is kind of a starts kind of late February and goes through the spring is, is considered crawfish season. That's when they're all uh, coming out. And, um, but yeah, it's uh, New Orleans is, has good food, really good food. Um, I'm, I'm in Lafayette, which is about two hours West. And uh, we, we claim to be even better cuisine than the new orleans so there's okay a little, there's a little you're, feud there you know you're, you're you have a feud with the big city <laughs> well what's your personal favorite is that your personal favorite or do you have another you know if you and the wife are going out for a nice dinner yeah. what, what's, what's the thing that you're going to have down there uh so if it's like cajun cuisine um i really enjoy like a, a crawfish etouffee which is kind of like um it's like just crawfish with in a in a sort of like spicy gravy sort of over rice um that's sort of like the that's that would be like my go-to cajun dish uh and there's there's a new orleans style of of all this stuff whether it's gumbo or etouffee or jambalaya there's a there's a lafayette version a cajun version and then a new orleans like creole version of it that wow. are a little bit different so yeah super cool man okay well, that's the clean animal. So coming back to the text, unclean animal. So here's the definition of that. Uh, quote, unclean animals, land animals that either do not chew the cud or do not have a split hoof, such as pigs, dogs, cats, horses, donkeys, and rats. Seafood lacking either fins or scales, such as shellfish, lobster, oysters, and catfish. Some birds, such as owls, ooh, hawks, and vultures, <laughs> yuck and other animals such as reptiles and amphibians unquote so a lot of yeah. animals on this list make i was wrong sense. shellfish are on the unclean <laughs> oh bummer i was reading um, ahead and thought it was the clean animals but no that's unclean <laughs> in the in the unclean camp no crawfish go, but, uh, Oh, man. Well, that oh, unfortunate for Louisiana down there. But you know what? A lot of animals on that list make perfect sense not to eat. 
right. mean, a vulture or an owl. I mean, it just, ugh. I'm sure there's somebody in the world who has has done that, but mm-hmm. yuck. And and dogs don't eat dogs. I I have a dog. His name is Coda. Yeah. He's great. Uh, that's ugh. yeah. So a a good list of uh, unclean. Have you eaten some of this food before? Obviously, uh, I'm assuming you've eaten pig, lobster, shellfish, mm-hmm. and oysters and all of that uh anything else you've you've eaten there have you tried reptiles um alligator alligator uh, okay how is alligator yeah. i don't think i've ever had that it's good it's it's like um it's like the perfect kind of combination of chicken and fish as far as like the way it kind of tastes and the texture of it it's it's kind of weird but it it's good okay yeah i would i would imagine it'd be very weird that's one of the creepiest <laughs> animals on on planet earth to me just you know yes. sitting down there in the moat with its beady eyes looking at you it's just a mm-hmm. ugh, creepy animal <laughs> but um okay in a later episode i may get more into depth about why there were clean animals and unclean animals and there's a whole cultural thing obviously with that it definitely seems to have to do with more than diet. Like it's not just not just diet that God was instructing people in the law not to eat some of these animals or making some of these animals clean. There were more reasons why the community who wrote this understood God asking them to refrain from unclean animals. So I'll maybe tackle that at a different time. For our purposes, there is a reason Noah and his family took extra pairs of clean animals rather than just a singular pair like what they did with unclean animals. This also shows that the Hebrew scriptures sacrificial system goes back quite a ways. Leviticus and the instructions from that book are obviously further down the timeline from Noah's Ark, obviously probably big time, but followers of God in this day thought that offering animal sacrifices was a a pleasing act of worship to God. So that's why uh, this is going on. Um, And in seminary, Eli, uh, what have you heard or been taught or thought about in regard to the animal sacrificial system in the Hebrew scriptures? Uh, Do you have any thoughts in that regard to that system or or anything to add to the, the clean animals and unclean animals? Um, not so. I remember in my old Testament class, which I took very early on, um, in seminary, um, one of the things that my professor who he was a great professor um was just like excited about teaching so that that was a very memorable class for me always Um, the best people yeah always the best teachers and uh i remember one of the things he always harped on was all of these laws um whether it's about clean and unclean animals or don't uh mix you know cotton and polyester, you know, all of these, all of these, like all of these laws that seem kind of strange to us kind of had like a, a, a lot of them had to do with kind of separating God's people from the surrounding peoples. And so I'm sure some of it has to do with, with that, as far as clean and unclean animals, I'm sure some of it has to do with um, maybe processes that that make animals good to eat that we have now that they didn't have then that that's a, that's a really they didn't good point. that they didn't know about, but God did. So he told them, don't eat that. You know, it's technology it's now versus how you would prepare right. animals back then. Yeah. Um, that's, that's one thing I've thought of. Um, and then as far as the sacrificial system goes, um, you know, I think we, I think oftentimes we, it kind of is weird for us cause we don't, we don't have that. And, in America or really like most places in the world 
aren't, you know, going around and making animal sacrifices um, at this point. Uh, maybe there's probably more than than you would think, uh, maybe out there in the, around the world. But uh, it's it's strange to us. But um, I, and I often think we kind of limit it to kind of that penal substitutionary atonement sort of idea. Um, but sacrifice was way more. Um, it, it meant a lot more things than than we often think about. We often limit it to that. But um, but even like. really like the day of atonement sacrifices were the main ones that dealt with that. Um, a lot of the other ones had to do with guilt offerings or there's even thanks offerings, um, that were, that would be made. Um, and, uh, yeah, one, one, one thing we often don't think about too, as far as atonement goes, is that on the day of atonement, the, the goat that had all the sins confessed over it is the one that wasn't sacrificed um which is an interesting point to think about um because we think like oh jesus spilled his blood to atone for our sins well like if you go and actually look at how the atonement sacrifice was done the the blood spilled was to purify the tabernacle not to atone for the sins the the sins were laid on the goat that that ran away into the wilderness which is Interesting. So we just, I think we just don't understand the sacrifice. We haven't, Yeah. not a lot of us have studied it a whole lot. And so it's There's just, certainly a, a cultural barrier there. It's it's yeah, very foreign to all seems, of us here in seems America. brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unnecessary, but for them, and then we often don't think about too, like, uh, you know, so think about the Passover, which was really a sacrifice of remembrance more than anything else, but they, when they made the sacrifice, they took it home and ate it. You know, it was, it was a family meal of remembering uh, the Passover and thanking God for that. So I think it was probably a lot less like just plain brutal than we, we often kind of just imagine it being. Um, it was, um, but yeah, it, it is definitely a culture, a huge cultural barrier as far Absolutely. as sacrifice goods. <laughs> yeah, big time. Uh, okay, so chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, uh, quote, seven mm -hmm. days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him, or all that the Lord commanded him. Unquote. So the last verse five, again, a call back to the end of chapter six. Noah was a righteous guy, a good guy who wanted to do what God had asked him to do. However, God was communicating to him and whatever he understood of the true God at that point, he he wouldn't have had a Bible or even the law. Mm -hmm. He wanted to follow the path laid out. Hence, he was preparing for the arrival of animals, separating clean and unclean animals, as well as welcoming additional pairs of clean animals and birds. In the last episode on Genesis chapter 6, Noah just had an ominous warning from God that the flood was coming and received instructions for building his boat, an ark, which which is kind of weird. It's just like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm building a big boat that's one and a half football fields long, you know? In yeah. our passage on this episode, things are definitely getting more specific. We're, we're getting into the meat to the heart of the story. The flood is coming in seven days. It is coming up quickly. So... Lots of uses of the number seven. We have seven days until the flood, seven pairs of clean animals, seven pairs of birds. We have the creation account being seven days. 
what is the understanding of the significance of the number seven? I think the the common the kind of general knowledge that I guess it's it feels like it's probably common knowledge for Christians at least that seven is kind of a number of completion or fullness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably is because the word in Hebrew for seven, which is, I, I want to say Sheva or something like that, is has the same consonants, the same three consonants as the word for completeness or fullness. I, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's a Hebrew scholar that, that would... <laughs> <laughs> I am not, but I'm very far from a Hebrew scholar. So I did not like and taking like shouting Hebrew. at us from their car. Like, what are you yeah. guys doing? Hebrew was one of my least favorite in, in seminary. It, it looks um, so hard. I, I never took but, it either. Uh, it's, it looks very difficult for sure. But yeah, you know, they have the consonants. Um, and then if, if Hebrew then was just written in the content consonants, but now we have the little vowel markers, um, to indicate, you know, what vowels are supposed to be pronounced. Um, and uh, the same three consonants are for seven and for completeness. So that probably has something to do with yeah. with the the comparison there. Um, it intersects and ties together. Yeah. Now, I did see that specific to this. Um, there was like a, a Jew. I did read, I think it was in the um, the New American Commentary. Um, it was saying that, uh, there was a midrash, which is, you know, a Jewish, um, teaching on it that said that the seven day interval was a period of mourning for the death of Methuselah who had died in the year of the flood. Um, and then it, it said, or it could be, um, a period for God's own grief for the world. Um, so maybe that was a practice. You, you take a week of grief when somebody has died, or in God's case, when a lot of people are about to die, yeah, um, you know, it could, that could be that could have something to do with it, um, according to that that Jewish teaching. I asked this question to my friend Pastor Tyler last episode. Hmm. The comment about God wanting to wipe from the face of the earth every living creature. You mentioned God's God's grief there. Every living mm-hmm. creature that God had made. How do we understand this given that God had created all of these creatures? You know, and it, it was and it was glorious. He called them very good. The first chapter of Genesis, I think people get lost in the weeds again, like you mentioned at the beginning with science and all of that. I think I think we get lost in these kind of meaningless disputes and we lose the joy and the dance of the creation, the celebration that that passage is about. How do we process that essentially what God is doing here is kind of a recreation? It's kind of like a, you know, wiping the slate clean and, and starting over kind of a deal. Yeah, it's it's tough because right. uh, it it's one of the so like if this is a passage that is a bit of a stumbling block for you, uh, which is very understandable. Um then the typical kind of Christian answers aren't really going to cut it. Like, uh, you know, oh, God is sovereign. You know, oh, you know, who are we to question God? Um, you know, there, there's there's all sorts of answers like that. That uh, just, to me, like, it's like, well, there's a reason someone is struggling with that. And those those answers aren't like aren't good enough um 
And, uh, and I, if I was personally struggling and someone told me that I was like, would be just like, okay, that's, that doesn't help me reconcile this. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's really tough. Um, I do think there is, um, I, I think there is an emphasis on recreation. Um, and, uh, there is a degree to, I, I wrote down, let me see if I can find it in, in my notes r real quick. I wrote down this quote that I saw in an article from Miroslav Volf. Volf. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know if you've, he, he's a great, um, he, a great thinker and, and Christian writer. Um, As a matter of fact, Pastor Tyler was quoting his uh, exclusion and embrace last episode. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 I do remember that now that you say that I, I listened to that episode, but it's been a while. Um, this is from uh, his book, Free of Charge, uh, Giving and, a, and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. Uh, he said, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Um, unquote. Uh, and that... Again, that that could be still not cutting it, um, but there is a degree to which it says that pe all people had on their minds was evil. Um, yeah, and there is a degree to which and full when we of violence. There's right yeah. when we experience those those sorts of regimes or people. Um, you know, the the easy is, uh, you know, Hitler or. Um, you know, any number of, of people like him, uh, that have massacred so many people, there is a degree to which our hearts ache for wrath to mm -hmm. be meted out on that evil. And if that's the sort of world, uh, that was going on at the time, uh, there is a degree to which it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. let, let God's wrath run. Now there is also the question of what about all the other people? Um, but we, all we have to go by is, is the text. Um, yeah. and then there's the, there, there's also the other side of, of the matter, which is why was this text written in the first place? And yes, it's most of these genus, most of these texts in the first, um, what would it be? 11 chapters of Genesis have parallels in other ancient texts, but there's yes. also always something a bit different um, mm -hmm. about the Jewish text that kind of sets it apart. Um, so in this text, it would be the fact that um, for one, you know, in the, the one you mentioned um, they're like flooding the earth because people are too noisy and it just sounds like really petty, like really petty gods. And yeah. I think in the Gilgamesh one too, uh, the gods are even like um, kind of scared of when the flood comes. Um, right. And, and in this, and then this ancient text, uh, God is in control. He has purpose and his purpose um, is even just in some way. Uh, you, you could argue, argue he is, getting rid of extreme amounts of evil, um, in the world. And so there's a degree to which like you, you look at it from that side and say, okay, these people are writing, making sense of their God 
and why this event happened maybe. And, um, and also at the same time, setting their God apart um, as higher than the gods of the people around them. And so I, I think all those things are in play as far as what's going on here, but it is, it is really hard. Anyone that finds this to be a stumbling block, um, you know, I, I never would like roll my eyes at that or, 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 you know, wonder why they would, why they can't just say, Oh, well, God is God. He can do what he wants. Well, no, like, yeah, that's, that's it's, not really how it works, but yeah, it, it's understandable. And I think, you know, what we're both trying to say is there's always going to be questions that cannot be answered. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're not God. We don't have the mind of God and, and, you know, it's okay for people to wrestle with a lot of those questions too. It's just, yeah. uh, this is a very hard passage. Like we said, it is not for children. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's a very difficult passage to wrestle with. Um, We'll yeah. get back to verse six here, clipping right along, uh, quote, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, unquote. So we, again, we're reminded of the massive lifespans going back to Genesis five with that big, long genealogy, um, that these early leaders in Genesis had. And I, I've already covered that a little bit. You can go back and listen to that episode on, on Genesis chapter five. Noah was 500 years old when he fathered his children now at year 600, the floodwaters were going to come on the earth. So getting some precise dating going on here. Uh, verse 7, Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. So the party of eight is now entering the ark. The text seems to read that the family had the warning that in seven days the floodwaters were coming, so they went ahead and got in the ark there, preparing for the cataclysm. And the family were not the only living creatures who would be bolting for the ark. So verses 8 and 9, pairs of clean and unclean animals of birds and all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. So as we talked about with chapter six, verse 20, the animals were apparently coming to Noah's ark, which is obviously a miracle. Noah is not going out and rounding up these animals. This seems to be like a movement of God's spirit. God is bringing these animals to the ark. And then we come to verse 10. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. Here we go. Uh, verses 11 and 12. As the Joker might say. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Not comparing God to the Joker, but that's what came from. Yeah, mind. no, I, I, Here I would we think, go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> would not take uh, God to be Heath Ledger or, no. or Jack Nicholson or whoever else has played the Joker at this point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> verses mm -hmm. 11 and 12. Uh, Quote, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So again, a very specific dating going on here by this Genesis author, uh, but it does leave a lot unclear. It's like It seems like it's specifically dating something. But we don't have a baseline as to measuring, like, you know, get, getting a measurement for when this actually happened. Uh, mm -hmm. Gordon J. Winham writes in Word Biblical Commentary, Genesis 1 to 15, 
uh, quote, given our ignorance of the calendars used in Old Testament times, it is impossible to be dogmatic about the significance of the dates in the flood story. The dates may, of course, simply be mentioned to underline the factuality of the flood to give assurance that it really happened. However, various suggestions have been made to find symbolic significance behind the numbers since ancient peoples believe they held the key to the mysteries of the universe. So none of this is very clear. Uh, the presence of the number seven over and over again certainly seems significant. And 40 days and 40 nights will show up in other places in scripture. Uh, the speci specificity, though, seems to suggest this was a major event for the ancient community who shared this account dating it down to the 17th day of the second month. If only we could pinpoint further, but we don't, again, have a baseline to do so. Uh, the springs of the mm -hmm. great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. This phrase, I think, pretty much is universally agreed upon as poetic, probably even with fundamentalists, although I'm not too sure about that. Who knows? Uh, even with yeah. more conservative fundamentalists, I think they, you know, this is, poetic it simply means yeah, and it started raining it calls back lot. yeah, yeah. Go ahead. and it calls back to um the 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 language of the genesis account too um, oh yeah in genesis uh -huh. he he separated the waters um and here it's being basically like unseparated they're kind of crashing back together um, yeah so it's definitely calling back to that language from from genesis one right from the chaos that god created the world going back to the chaos, chaos of swirling water. Yeah, very much yeah. kind of a cyclical callback, if you will, going mm -hmm. on. Really, mm -hmm. yeah, great point. It's really interesting. Um, the great deep burst forth may refer to the belief that there was a subterranean ocean of some kind. So water gushing forth from springs or wells under the ground. It runs parallel with ancient cosmology of these fellow human beings that the world was created from a kind of, of a water world, like what we were talking about and listening mm -hmm. back to Genesis chapter one in commentary on the Torah author, Richard Elliott Friedman comments on this verse, uh, quote, one must have a picture of the structure of the universe that is described in Genesis one in order to comprehend the significance of the destruction that is narrated in the flood story. The creation account pictures a clear firmament or space holding back the waters that are above the firmament and those that are below. Now, the narrative reports that all the fountains of the great deep were split open and the apertures of the skies were opened. The cosmic waters are able to spill in from above and below, filling the habitable bubble. Thus, it is far more than an ordinary rain. It is a cosmic crisis. I love that. In which the very structure mm -hmm. of the universe is endangered, unquote, the structure of the universe according to, obviously, the, the way that these human beings back then would have seen this. So that's going along with with your comment, Eli, that it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's going back to creation, the creation account. I love this point because, again, in biblical ancient times, how they would have seen an event like this is, is one that threatened their entire reality. And even going into that universal flood versus localized, even a localized flood, it would have been the known world. They didn't have mass travel that they could go all over the world. They didn't have an internet that they could talk to people in other countries. It would have been the world that they would have known and and lived in, you know, a limited space there in the ancient Near East in the in the Middle East. Um, okay, 
verses 13 to 16. We're cruising along here through this passage. Uh, quote, on that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of the three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that loved that I, I got this wrong in my notes here that <laughs> goes along the ground according to its kind and every bird according to its kind. Everything with wings, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals were going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in, unquote. So repetitive from the accounts mentioned in verses 7 to 9, as far as the family entering the ark, this is another reason why many scholars believe that there were multiple authors even for this flood account, and then the accounts were stitched together after the writing later on, maybe, you know, maybe not very long afterwards, but uh, but perhaps stitched together. And this verse gets to a specific marking of when they went in the ark, almost like a festive occasion. And again, a miracle involved here as far as the animals being drawn to the ark, entering. Obviously, fish and sea creatures would not need to be on the ark, although you can maybe ask a question here about what happened with freshwater fish and aquatic animals, stuff like that. Another miracle appears to involve the Lord shutting the door of the ark so Noah, his family, and all the animals would be safe from the flood waters. Although the wrath of God is being demonstrated outside the enclosure of the ark, God is in close contact with Noah and his family and is looking after them. Also, the Lord shuts Noah and his family in the ark. They are saved by divine action here as salvation is found by those just simply being on the ark. Eli's mentioned the epic of Gilgamesh uh, that has uh, Unapishtim, hope I pronounced that right, closing the door himself. In the Genesis account, humanity does not shut the door. God shuts the door and therefore ensures their salvation. Um, wow. So, Eli, how would you like to be floating around on these turbulent waters with your family and a bunch of animals, birds, snakes? Uh, yeah. You, you hate snakes like Indiana Jones. You, you have Raiders of the Lost Ark coming up on yeah. your podcast. Uh, I, I don't, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can't say I would be looking forward to to this um this trip, but uh it's it's not exactly a cruise. Um yeah, but yeah. I don't know. My son might enjoy all the animals. It would feel like kind of like a zoo. Um so there you, go. you know as that... long as it was maybe somewhat controlled. I guess there are three decks right. to this, but as you mentioned before, I mean, yeah, it's not a it's not a smooth sailing. There's no rudder or sail that's yeah. mentioned, so there had it's to have just, been some organization as far as the animals go, though. Yeah, you would think. I mean, but, but it's basically a boat just being tossed <laughs> around by a very violent deluge, right? I mean, it's just... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, terrifying. It would be mm -hmm. absolutely terrifying. Absolutely. Verses 17 and 18, quote, For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. 40 days of rain, just, just insanity to imagine. And it doesn't seem like what is being described here is normal, obviously by any stretch of the imagination, normal rain, we'll say. The ark is rising as the waters rise. Um, apparently the ark and people and animals that are inside, they're, they're truly in the hands of God. There's no 
there's no control generally over where this boat is going. Uh, verses 19 and 20, uh, quote, they rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. So again, we get that repetition and something the author or authors of this text are really emphasizing this again, it, it's obvious, but it's a massive flood. Uh, Gordon J. Winham points out in Word Biblical Commentary, Genesis 1 to 15, quote, the phrases on the earth and waters occur six times in this paragraph, often in close conjunction. Both these phrases produce a strong resonance with Genesis 1, but are hardly heard again until the flood story, which recounts the undoing of creation. There also appear to be an above average number of words containing the sound like an M sound and the uh, phonetically adjacent B, for example, Mabul, flood. This alliteration perhaps suggests the presence of water, mayhem, even when the water is not used, unquote. So Wenham further points out that the waters are not just multiplying, maybe a wordplay on be fruitful and multiply or a kind of tragic irony, but the waters triumph, the waters win. There's a Hebrew word used four times in this passage that is a military word for succeeding in battle, which was mm -hmm. really, really interesting to read. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, yeah I, it's use of the I water. I do want to say, I do want to say on that point, um, it seems like there is um, a parallel in the language of how earlier in in the the passages you've already colored covered it talks about the increasing wickedness um mm -hmm. and then the e increasing waters so <clears throat> it, you know talking about you know god's wrath and and his and judgment um it seems like the implication there is that god is causing the waters to rise to the level of um the level that is necessary for the the right amount of judgment, which I think is interesting. Um, and then on top of that, um, you know, the battle language, I, I think that's a really cool point. Um, I didn't see that in my study when I was looking, um, you know, looking at a couple commentaries, uh, but I did, um, I did think about how, you know, the question of, well, who, how or did really everyone die on the whole earth? That sort of question. And um, there is that battle language used, say, for the Canaanites um, in Joshua 1 through 12, when they're they're de destroying the Canaanites. And then you get to verse, you get to 13. Well, in, in, in 1 through 12, it makes it seem like they're all gone. They destroyed all the Canaanites. And then you get to chapter 13, and it's like, hey, you know, take in some of the Canaanite women this sort of thing. And it's like, wait a second, I thought they were all gone. Well, that's it's just battle language. Um, yeah. We destroyed everyone. Uh, you know, it's just kind of like the that military language that was used in the literature. They didn't actually, it, it, as far as we can tell in the very next chapter, they didn't actually slaughter everyone. Uh, but that was like the, the victorious military language that was used. So maybe something like that is going on here with, with the flood account too. Um, who, who knows, you know? Yeah. It, it's certainly fascinating insight either way, um, yeah. to, to uncover that. Uh, and there's so much here about the waters covering mm -hmm. the entire earth above yeah. the mountains. And this is where our, our friends who are conservative believers or, or fundamentalists would definitely argue for a universal flood. 
Uh, They'll point out the mountains under the entire heavens were covered to argue that the whole earth was obviously covered by water. And 15 cubits is probably about 22 feet or seven meters above the highest mountains on earth. So again, you know, it it seems like Eli and I are on the same page. Neither of us believe in a, a global flood. I think I've already mentioned, I think it's just hard to get there looking at the world we live in today. There would be so much more <laughs> evidence that this <laughs> this happened yeah. on a, a global scale, I think, than is out there. Uh, but, you know, I mean, Mount Everest is 29,032 feet tall. Okay, yeah. that I, I looked that up for this episode. I'm not sure if young Earth creation scientists believe the mountain was that tall whenever they say this flood happened or or whatnot but i mean it's got to be pretty close and that that's a boat that would be sailing really really high it's just hard to imagine that yeah um and i i think i think the the issue the main issue is young earth creationists and you know you can look at the history of when when this kind of uh universal flood, global flood, whatever you want to call it, really came into being. And it really wasn't until the 60s. Um, And uh, before that, you know, evangelicals weren't really like that big on a universal flood. It it wasn't that big of a deal. It really came in around in the 60s when they were wanting to have an explanation for the fossil record. Evolution was uh, a growing um, science at that time. Um, and the, the geology, um, was kind of all over the place at the time. They, they were just discovering tectonic plates, which would come to kind of explain a lot of the gaps. But at the time the flood was like, well, it's right here. It's in the Bible. The flood can explain all of this, an entire global flood. Well, then there's the science progresses and, but the young earth creationists stick to that. And it becomes a point of like, well, we're so, it seems like it comes to like, we're so need to hold on to this so hard to destroy evolution. And also yeah. so that we can claim the authority of the the scripture. And right. the fact is the, the authority of scripture is always tied to the literary form it takes. You know, what are, what is the point of the literature here? What, mm-hmm. is, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to explain facts um yeah. like scientific facts well no it, it, they're not they're trying to make theological points um and if hyperbolic language is used yes, uh, right. to make theological points that's a key point um, i think so yeah but but yeah and, and I, I think that's the big issue when it comes to you know ministries like answers in genesis um that are that want to hold so tight to that quote unquote literal translation is yeah. as if reading in context uh, isn't literal. Um, that's a whole nother rabbit. Yeah. Trail, but, um, that's uh that's Ken Ham's organization. Uh, right. Out Kentucky with, um, uh, and, creation museum. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes a, it becomes a very much a kind of um, a secondary or ter- tertiary theological issue becomes a primary. And that's a problem when that, when that happens to me. At any rate, you got to admit this would be an interesting way to summit Mount Everest, right? <laughs> yeah, build, absolutely. build a big arc, and uh, you're 22 feet above the summit. So, so there you go. Um, we're getting near the end of the passage here, uh, verses 21 to 24. 
Quote, every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Unquote, a complete catastrophe. God's creation washed away. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Animals and birds and human beings, everything on the face of the earth was wiped out. So only mm. Noah was saved and his family with him on the ark. We are told these waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Incredible. And of course, another argument that proponents of a worldwide flood would say is that everything was wiped off the face of the earth, because that's quite a statement, you know, animal species, people, all of that. If someone takes that literally and historically, then sure, yes, that's probably what it means. The Bible, however, often uses, like you, you were saying, Eli, hyperbole, exaggerated language to communicate the extent of this judgment or, or this wrath. Hmm. Was the area that Noah lived in completely wiped out? Again, the the known biblical world at this time. In other words, you know, they 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 knew what they knew in the area they lived. They didn't travel too far from home. Was it their own community that was washed away? So, if you're into the localized flood story, I don't know if we'll dive too deep into these articles just for time's sake. But I found a couple articles. One in the Smithsonian Magazine, which is arguing hmm. for a massive flood in the Black Sea area. And if you take Noah as being some kind of a historic figure, maybe there's a little bit of literary stuff. Maybe Noah actually was real. Maybe there actually was some kind of real flood that all of these flood stories, including Gilgamesh, including uh, the Genesis account. There are other flood accounts as well that came from other cultures. Mm -hmm. um, there was apparently a massive flood, according to Smithsonian, uh, 7,500 years ago um, that roared into the Black Sea area. So apparently they found geological evidence of this. I'll read a little bit of this. Uh, quote, the scientific version of Noah's flood actually starts long before that, back during the last great glacian some 20,000 years ago. This was a time when the Earth looked very different from what we are used to today. Thick ice sheets extended down from the North Pole as far as Chicago and New York City. All that water had to come from somewhere, so the ocean levels were about 400 feet lower than they are today. Unquote. Basically, I mean, they, they were saying ocean water meant fresh water. It created this massive flood because of the buildup. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, you know, they have evidence of human civilization that's only 150 feet above sea level. Um, they mentioned that in the article. And there was something like Niagara Falls times 200 yeah. when this flood <laughs> happened. That would have been a massive catastrophe. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's also a an article I found ABC News. And this is from, you know, 20 or so years ago. This one, ABC, was uh, actually 2012, the year I got married. Um, titled Evidence Noah's Biblical Flood Happens, says Robert Ballard. He doesn't mean a worldwide biblical flood. He is, again, picking up on this evidence in the Black Sea region. I know I sent you uh, these mm -hmm. articles to Eli. Uh, anything that jumped out at you as you read through these and, and took a look? 
No, uh, not specifically. I mean, I read them and I was like, yeah, this, you know, lines up with kind of my line of thinking about what might have happened at this time, uh, whenever this was. Um, but, uh, but again, it, you know, maybe it was then, maybe it was way earlier, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like, you know, we'll, we'll maybe never know until we can, you know, ask God <laughs> yeah, in person God. maybe one day. <laughs> right, exactly, um, how, how it all but, works uh, out, sure. Yeah. So another issue with the localized flood idea that, you know, the idea that you and I share, uh, this goes into what we will be exploring next episode, so I'll probably get into it more then. But God provides a rainbow as a sign that there will not be another flood like this one. But we've had huge, awful floods which have destroyed life before, and even mm. in relatively recent history, we had a tsunami in Indonesia that was a result of a large earthquake in the Indian Ocean that people out there probably remember back on December or back, yeah, December 26th, a day after Christmas, 2004, yeah. uh, this tsunami tragically and horrifically claimed many lives. And when I say many lives, 227,899 people is the official count. It may be more than that. Um, and it's described as creating waves as tall as 98 feet or 30 meters. And all of these people are gone. I mean, it, it is horrible. And Eli down in Louisiana, where you live, uh, New Orleans suffered hurricane Katrina back in August, 2005. I'm sure we all remember that levees mm -hmm. were breached because New Orleans is beneath sea level. Uh, the lower ninth ward in New Orleans was flooded. Lots of people died. There's a book, um, what is it, Five Days at Memorial by Sherry Fink. It was turned into a miniseries. Uh, both of those are excellent. The book obviously is better. Um, just talking about some of the impossible moral and ethical dilemmas that that doctors yeah. and nurses face trying to care for people. Eli, can you talk about that impact on, on that community down there? Because floods still take a lot of lives, and we still kind of wrestle yeah. with, with these things. Yeah, it's... So back in 2005, I'm, I'm originally from Georgia. I've been, I've been here for 10 years now. Uh, so I was, I think I was in middle school when Katrina happened. So I do remember like doing can drives and stuff um, in middle school when it happened. Um, but I, you know, I do know people that were here when it happened and I've, I've been around for, for floods that have happened in, in recent years. Um, uh, and there was a, a bad one a couple years ago in Lake Charles, which is, um, about an hour and a half West closer to Texas. Um, really bad one. And, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it's devastating. It's people's, you don't, you don't really think about how devastating something like that is until like, you can't live in your home anymore. What the place that should be your, your safe place for you and yes. your family and yeah. all of a sudden, like it's unlivable. There's mold. Um, even even once the waters recede, like you can't live there. There's there's mold. You've got to tear everything out, gut you know, gut the house and um, and try to rebuild. Um, it's it's devastating and it's it's hard for people to deal with. Um, there's a lot of great organizations that that rush in when these things happen. Um, some Christian, some not that. Um, you know, and part of those organizations, they, a, a big part of it is they, um, they have, you know, whether it's pastors or counselors come in too, because it, people need guidance in those times. They don't just need the, the physical help, but they need guidance of how to, how to deal with 
the the devastation. So um yeah, it, it's a it's a huge impact when a when a flood comes through for sure. And yeah, that's another difficulty of kind of a localized flood is, you know, they seem to happen so often and, and so tragic and so many lives lost. Mm-hmm. But um, again, I think you have to say that the localized flood in Noah's time was maybe even more substantial than some of these we see today, even Perhaps. though, some, you know, yeah. I mean, the Indian Ocean one is just that, that still seems mind boggling, just what what happened to those communities and those people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's something we still deal with today and it's, uh, it's sobering. So on that sobering note, we will end, uh, the discussion of Genesis chapter seven, because it feels kind of appropriate to end this chapter on a sobering note because there's not, you know, they haven't hit dry ground and I do think there's a twinge of hope. I do think there's a twinge of hope there. Give me some hope. Give me some hope. Um, it's, it's in the language only Noah remained, um, and obviously like, you know, that's more just like, there's obviously something being done with the language. Cause obviously there's Noah and his sons and his wife and their wives. Like it's not only Noah. Um, but the language is almost like reminiscent of the idea of the remnant, which is a, a something that, you know, the Jewish readers would have been very familiar of. It's, it's the people that have remained, um, that have remained faithful to God, um, that will, you know, that will be a part of, you know, that will be God's people that will remain as God's people and be blessed by God. Um, and so there is that idea there in that, that phrasing of only Noah remains that idea of the remnant, those who have been faithful to God. And, and I think we see too, like Noah, Noah's faithfulness wasn't just blind. Um, I think one reason it repeats the same stuff over and over is it's showing us everything God said in Genesis six came true. Like, God's proving everything he said to Noah to be true. Um, God's staying, God is faithful first and Noah, Noah follows suit. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's, I guess that's like the twinge of hope in the midst of the, the storm, if you will. Watery chaos. Yes. Let's, you know, let's remain faithful because God is true to, to what he says. Well, that's great. Eli, thank you for sharing that word of hope after a, a very intense <laughs> yes. chapter of Genesis chapter seven uh, for the audience out there, please uh, go to wherever you get podcasts and look up the establishing shot by Eli price. Listen to uh, that podcast. As I mentioned before, he's done Wes Anderson, Christopher Nolan, and he mm-hmm. is just starting with Steven Spielberg in the 1970s and eighties. It's, it's a lot of fun. It goes so much deep. You will learn things. You will, have your cinematic mind opened uh, to appreciate all many of the movies, at least that you probably love out there. So go check out that podcast for my podcast. If you would leave a rating and a review, that would be exceptional. Hey, do that for Eli too. That'd be really cool. And um, yeah, thank you so much for listening, for being a part of this discussion about the Bible with us until next time.